Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. You're about to listen to the lecture, The Role of the State in Education. This is the third in our series, Culture Wars Then and Now, which features lectures recorded at the Academy Summer School. Each talk explores some of the intellectual, cultural, social and political trends that combine to shape the culture wars. The debates surrounding Parkfield School in Birmingham and wider discussion on the role of sex and relationship classes within educational programmes are just the latest examples of schools becoming a battlefield for the culture wars. Bitter clashes over multiculturalism and religious practices have also placed the state of schools, teachers and the state, as well as parents and children, in the crossfire of controversy. So how have we got here? This lecture explores the historic role of the state in education. The lecturer is James Tooley, Professor of Educational Entrepreneurship and Policy at the University of Buckingham, and the author of The Beautiful Tree, a personal journey into how the world's poorest people are educating themselves. I want to give you this thesis, this argument, which challenges you to be cautious whenever you think of state education. Because I want you to think of education, or, or to be thinking of the role of state in education as follows, that the state got involved in education, got involved, period, in order to push forward its particular line in the early education culture wars. That was the reason why it was got, got involved, and one can then see that development over the years. So yes, I am going to go back, as uh, James, James II, as I call him, um, uh, remarked, I am going to go back in time, but let me just start with currently. I don't want to spend any length of time on it, but what about this, perhaps the most extreme case, really, in my lifetime of the government intervening in education in a very, in the area that's most intimate and, and, and close to family life? Remember, governments are supposed to be there in loco parentis. And yet, as we see in the Birmingham cases Frank mentioned earlier, clearly, for many parents, what they're doing in terms of relationship and sex education is absolutely not what is required. And I just want to make two points about it. First of all, there is what you might, I don't know, this is stretching the, uh, the um, definition, but you might call the sort of fake news aspect of it, certainly a spin. There was, two th in, in the year 2000, there was produced guidance, non-statutory guidance on sex and relationship education for all schools. Justine Greening, who was the Secretary of State for Education and Minister for Women and Equalities, was absolutely clear why the 2000 guidance needed updating, eventually to become statutory. So your school, your primary school, in your primary school, you've got to follow this from September 2019. Um, she was absolutely clear. She said it's because it's becoming increasingly outdated. It fails to address risks to children that have grown in prevalence, including cyberbullying, sexting, and staying safe online. That was the explicit reason for it. That's what the newspapers picked up. That's what the House of Commons and the House of Lords heard and responded to. But if you look at the document on, now it's called Relationship and Sex Education, now it's statutory, you'll see that there were only eight paragraphs on those issues, 6% of the whole document. 
They are not much different, actually, from the, docu the, the, the um, paragraphs that were there in the 2000 document. So there's, it's a smokescreen. What else is going on, of course, anyone who's read these documents, and I do recommend you read these documents, not just the press reports, and compare. If you go back to the 2000 document, it seems like so naive and uh, you know, calm and attractive. It's there saying, young people, that there should be no direct promotion of sexual orientation. It's an area of concern for some parents. Schools that closely liaise with parents should be able to reassure parents. That was the emphasis in the 2000 document. Now you come to the 2019 document and a big title, new stuff, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender. We expect all pupils to be, have been taught LGBT content. Schools should be alive to issues such as everyday sexism, misogyny, homophobia, and gender st stereotypes, and take positive action to build a culture where these are not tolerated. I was speaking to David Goodhart the other day, and you, you, his brilliant book on somewheres and anywheres. He's got a section, you probably may have missed it, I don't know, where he talks about women's preferences. The majority of women, he says, you know, in responding to services, as, as uh, surveys, prefer a certain thing which would fit in to gender stereotypes. I would not be allowed, you are not allowed, to say those things in your schools. You are now doing something illegal, but what you can do, which is legal, is talk about other things like trans women are women and so on. That's legal. Saying women may prefer different options for family life is illegal with this guidance here. So. The second point I want to raise is just parents again. Parents. I've already mentioned something about parents in my first uh, quote there. But the 2000 document is so sensitive about parents. Parents need to know, it says, that the school's sex and relationship program will complement and support their role as parents. They can be actively involved in the determination of the school's policy. That's 2000, 2019. Schools should ensure that parents know what will be taught and when. It's astonishing, isn't it? And that's all brought in ostensibly because of concerns about sexting. Bullshit. It's a smokescreen. It's fake news. That is not what it's for. It's about, it's about the culture wars. How have we got to this position? And I love this audience. This is a very unusual audience for a university professor where I can probably even come out to you and say, actually, I don't like that guidance being thrown. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Normally, I get thrown, I get stoned <laughs> in, the, in the nasty sense when I say things like that. <laughs> um, well, how did we get to this case where the state, with no compunction at all, there were no Brexit-style wars in the Commons or anywhere else about you know, getting this legislation through. It went through on the nod, because people have read the press release. It's six, you know, six paragraphs about sexting. Yeah, we, that's fine. We'll allow that. How did that actually get through on the nod? Um, what I want to say in my paper is actually this, to quote Ecclesiastes, to quote, quote the great book, there's nothing new under the sun. And as I said, the very reason why government got involved in education in the first place 
was in order to push its side of the education culture wars. Now, you probably, I, 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 you know, I don't want to do this show your hands and what show of hands, but my guess is that many of you, if pushed, would say the government probably got involved in England and Wales and the United States and Scotland and wherever. The government probably got involved in order because you know there were there was no education going on so it needed to be involved in order to provide education and that would be the typical viewpoint if you look at wikipedia under the 1870 education act it says the government precisely that it said the government got involved because 50% of the population were not in school at all and that 50% figure actually comes from um, books like the english history of arthur arthur bryant and um, you know trevelyan's uh, British history in the 19th century, and so on. That figure is completely untrue. And it came about, if I can use that word again, it came about because of a bit of fake news, or at least spinning of data, in the lead-up to the 1870 Act. But before then, there, were ma there was masses of data, which has now somehow slipped away from our consciousness, government and independent, which showed a completely different picture. It showed the vast majority of children in school for about six years. The Newcastle Commission is the one piece of evidence that I shall look at today, but there was plenty of other. It was in keeping with other evidence that was, that was uh, around at the time. The Newcastle Commission was a thorough piece of research. There were 15 commissioners and assistant commissioners employed to scour England and Wales and look at all the schools that were there and make estimates from uh, different things about the, 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 the actual number of children in school. And it distinguished between two types of school. And it's very important that we dis distinguish them carefully now. They, it distinguished the public schools and what they called, it's surprising to me that I found this term in use back in the 1860s, the for-profit private schools. And the public schools were, yes, they were schools like the Eton and Harrows of this world, but they were also the church schools. And they were typically the Church of England and the, the Catholic schools. And they were considered, they called them the public. But for the purposes of what I want to say, let's call them as we would call them today, because they had virtually no state funding. Let's call them private non-profit compared to private for-profit. And what the Newcastle Commission found was as follows. 95.5% of children, 95.5% were in school for six years. This was before the state. There were some small subsidies from 1833, but the big state involvement was in 1870, and it found, the Newcastle Commission said, 95.5% were in school. So if you think about truancy from schools today, that figure was probably just as high then as it is today. And it found that the number of the total of schools, 42% of the schools were these private non-profit, they call them public, we'll call them private non-profit, and 58% were the private for-profit, sometimes called adventurous schools. They were there, the majority of schools, although they were smaller schools, so more pupils were in the private non-profit. 
If you're interested in this, in terms of girls, 46% of the students were girls in the private nonprofit. 40, uh, sorry, 55% uh, were girls in the private for-profit. So this was their finding. Where, and, and it was written there in qualitative evidence as well. Wherever the assistant commissioners went, they found schools of some sort and failed to discover any considerable number of children who did not attend school for some time. The means of obtaining education are diffused pretty generally and pretty equally over the whole face of the country. And the great mass of the population recognizes its importance sufficiently to take advantage to some extent of the opportunities thus offered to their children. And the Newcastle Commission also compared the situation in England and Wales with that in Prussia, Holland and France, where schooling by now was compulsory, and we compared favorably. So you know, I think that's, first of all, an extraordinary conclusion that has to sink in. Before the state got involved in 1870, there was almost universal provision. As my mentor, Professor E.G. West, wrote, the state jumped into the saddle of a horse that was already galloping. And what did it do with it? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment, but this is, you know, this is not just the Newcastle report. It was also many other reports were there. So where did this figure of 50% come from, that, the, uh, the, that um, Arthur Bryant, Trevelyan, Wikipedia speak about? It was actually a little bit of, as I say, fake news spin that W.E. Forster himself introduced when he was introducing the 1870 bill into the House of Commons. He didn't refer to the Newcastle Commission report of just a few years earlier. Instead, he referred to some evidence by two gentlemen from a couple of industrial towns in the north of England, Leeds and Manchester, Liverpool, Manchester, and he said in those places, they have found that only, uh, that only half of them are in schools of any quality and a further quarter are in schools of terrible quality. So a full quarter, and this was 20,000 children, were out of school altogether and 20,000 in schools that were no good. But he defined the school age as being from age... Uh, five to 13, a period of eight years. But what the Newcastle Commission had found was the de facto school age was five to 11 at that time. So do you see what he's done? He's now constructed a bit of fake news to say, well, if you extend it from five to 11, which is the reality, and say five to 13, then you're gonna get lots of kids who are not in school. It's a bit like if today we could argue, isn't the government terrible that Tory government, terrible, because if you look at the population of 5 to 21-year-olds, you'll find a huge percentage are not in full-time schooling. That would be stupid, wouldn't it? Because schooling full compulsory ends at age 18, roughly. So it would be stupid. He did it. It was picked up in the House of Commons. But my suggestion to you is that everyone's forgotten that, and we go along with Forster's fake news rather than the reality of the situation that was very clear from the Newcastle Commission and other reports uh, from all over the place. John Stuart Mill said, as regards the quantity of schooling, this was before the state was getting involved, 
as regards the quantity of schooling, we are satisfied in England and Wales now. It's the quality that's the problem. And this is then where the culture wars start kicking in. Because what was wrong with the quality of the schooling that was used in this fully, more or less fully private market, let's call it that? What was wrong with it? Well, I'll give you a couple of quotes to lead us in here. One was by, again, teachers will, will love this. There were, in the 19th century, early 19th century, there were two Her Majesty's inspectors. Two only. Now, nowadays, we all fear Ofsted, don't we? But there are only two inspectors there. And indeed, on the appointment letter of one of them, H.S. Tremonier, it was written, um, the scope of the work was outlined, inspecting and reporting on the state of education in England, Wales, and Scotland, though this work will not take up all of his time. <laughs> anyway, he did some inspections down in his native Cornwall. Um, it, this was in uh, uh, some, sometime early in the... 1840. And he made it clear, yes. And then now he was inspecting the non-profit private schools. Remember, these are the ones typically run by the Church of England and the Catholic Church, Church of England down there, I would guess. He said he was very happy for minors' children to be educated. Why? Such education would, would provide the moral and spiritual develop, improvement not to raise the individual from his own sphere, heaven forbid, but to enable him to do his duty in that sphere to which he belongs. In other words, he was inspecting schools for the ordinary people, the working classes, to make sure that the schools were keeping them in the station to which they belonged, not rising above their station. And Tremonier was eventually, he eventually left this and became a, um, an inspector of mines. But that sort of principle lived on, and you can see that principle again when you look at the, the reports of the commissioners of education around the Newcastle Commission. Now, they were very positive, I said, about the quantity of schooling, they thought that was all met. But what they were upset about or anxious about was the quality of schooling. And again, I'll read you a couple of the quotes, but the quotes are, I, I think, just, well, they astound me in a way. But they, quote after quote after quote, makes it clear that what poor parents, working class parents, ordinary parents wanted, they wanted the three R's, and time and time again, you realize what the government wanted was the fourth R. They wanted reading, writing, and arithmetic. The government wanted the fourth R, which was religion. And they were prepared to, to legislate in order to make sure they won this side of the culture wars. Um, the content, so let me just read you a couple of the, of the quotes here. Um, this is the Newcastle commissioners talking about the ordinary schools. The general principle on which they are based is that a large portion of the poorer classes of the population were in a condition injurious to their own interests. Sorry, this is now condemning what they're doing and dangerous and discreditable to the rest of the community. That religious education was the most powerful instrument for the promotion of this object. One 
com assistant commissioner says that parents, instead of acting for the moral betterment of their class, which is religious education, which makes you know your place in the world, instead of acting for the moral betterment of the class, the working classes are acting individually for the advantage of their respective children. And, I, and I, I, I liked what Frank was saying earlier about individual autonomy here. What the working classes are trying to do is to get that individual autonomy. Poor parents' choice of schools, another assistant commissioner opines, rather um, to tend to be determined more by the efficiency with which such things as tend to the advancement of, in life of their children are taught in it and by its general tone and discipline. One more says... Um, I've been asked whether the poor show a preference for one system of education over another, that is the church schools or these for-profit private schools, um, and whether there is short in anything in the present schools, the for-profit schools, which indisposes parents to send their children. I made the most diligent inquiry into these matters, and everyone told me that the poor, in selecting a school, looked entirely to whether the school supplied Good reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now, these, I could carry on, there's so many beautiful quotes like this, but it's absolutely clear. The quantity was no problem of schooling in Victorian England. It was the quality, and the quality of education were these upstart poor, not only creating schools, they were patronizing these schools, and they were looking to further advance their own lives in so doing. At this point, I wrote in my margins when Frank was talking that some of the schools that were condemned, okay, there were the Anglican schools and the Roman Catholic schools that were held up in esteem by the inspectors, but there were also not only the for-profit private schools, there were the private non-conformist schools run by Methodists, Baptists, and so on. And so I just wanted to plead to Frank, be a bit kinder about vulgar Christianity um, that you mentioned. These non-conformist church schools were actually seen as an enemy by the state. And in fact, they were actually stamped out in many ways by the state. Um, by the state. So first of all, then, the state objected to the quality of the content of the curriculum. But secondly, the state objected, again, this happens in the culture wars even today, or recently in education, it objected to the delivery of education. It objected to the, uh, the teachers. And the commissioners are, again, very good on this. They say, yes, the people who run these schools are generally um, respectable people, but in the for-profit schools, the teachers... They're not trained as teachers, and they, to quote, they often have no special fitness, or at least no fitness that is the fruit of preparation or training for their work, but have taken up the occupation in default or after the failure of other trades. And they went on to say, teachers, this is a lovely phrase, teachers, they say, in the for-profit and the non-conformist schools, they have picked up their knowledge promiscuously. Several combined, you can hear the horror in this voice, several combined the trade of schoolkeeping with another. The school teachers have been, some still are, 
Barbers, sailors, soldiers, millers, shop owners, accountants, blacksmiths, journeymen, tanners, excisemen, solicitors, dockyard laborers, and seamen, amongst others. Moreover, and this appears to be a very common complaint of the commissioners, many of these for-profit private school teachers suffer from some bodily infirmity. One assistant commissioner called without design, he says, on five masters successively, successively, all of whom were more or less deformed. A cripple, we may be informed, we are informed, may not usually make a good teacher. And there's this amazing story about the cripple, which I'd like to relate to you. Because again, it shows, I think it just epitomizes the approach of the commissioner's the inspectors, as we were leading up to the state being involved in education, based not on any inadequacy of the numbers, but with an understanding that the quality was not good enough. So the story, this is in the Newcastle Commission report, the story was of a poor cripple without legs from infancy. He himself had been schooled in one of the Church of England, and the national schools, and then he decided to open a school of his own, where it's encouraged by his friends to do so. And he opened the school very close to a very reputable Church of England national school. And this national school, we are told in this story, charged tuppence a week, but was curiously undersubscribed. We were told that even though this one is in high repute under an excellent certified master, it's undersubscribed. There is room for 50 more boys. It only has 150. It's room for 50 more. In contrast, we are told the private school, I'm quoting, the private school under the crippled, cripple is crowded to excess. The children have scarcely room to sit. Not only that, but the fees at the poor cripple school are more expensive than the fees at the national school. They're sixpence compared to tuppence. And this then is the rub. This is in capital letters now in the Newcastle Commission report. Boys are sometimes taken from the first, second, and third grades at the National School, the Church of England School, to be finished at this private school. You can hear the horror in those capital letters. In other words, poor parents, poor children, ordinary parents, ordinary children, preferred the kind of education that was being delivered in those kinds of places, rather than in the places where there was teacher-trained teachers. And it's a recurring puzzle, puzzle to the commissioners why this should be the case. But actually, again, we can look through their notes and the puzzle disappears fairly quickly. First of all, some of the commissioners in the Newcastle Commission report say, um, that it was the less able people, pupils, teachers, who became teachers. So just as we, we laugh about those who can teach, those who can't, no, those who can do, those who can't teach, that seems to have been true even then. And the, the situation was these, these, these teachers were trained in the government-appointed teacher training colleges that were emerging then, government-funded and government-trained. Uh, uh, government and these teachers were largely trained in what? Well, of course, there was 
the first four books of Euclid, algebra as far as quadratic equations, parts of the Latin, Latin grammar, which relates to accidents, concords, genders of nouns, perfect tenses, and supines of verbs. So there was that that they were taught. And of course, the main part, religion, which comprises in the first year of the history, I'm quoting from the Newcastle Commission, the history, chronology, and geography of the Bible with the text of some one gospel, the text of the catechism, and the, of the morning and evening services and litany, and the scriptural authorities on which they rest. In the second year, they added the Acts of the Apostles. And what the inspectors were quite honest about was that the teachers were trained in this stuff by rote and then went back to the non-profit schools which were increasingly being subsidized and looking, the government looking to replace the for-profit private schools. They went back to those schools and then inculcated the children by rote in the same way. So put yourself in the place of, stu of a student. Would you prefer to be taught by someone who has picked up knowledge promiscuously to actually working in those varied and exciting professions that I listed earlier on and can teach you real-world applications of that knowledge and help you in your journey to individual autonomy, autonomy and self-realization? Or would you prefer to be taught by someone who may be less able to start with who has learnt knowledge by rote learning and is set to regurgitate it all to you, all that they have learnt. I think to parents and children, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? But we side, we instinctively now, I think, side with the children, the parents. But the, the inspectors and the commissioners did not. The inspectors and the commissioners wanted something else and they wanted to impose something else, and that's why they intervened. That's why. That's the important point I'm trying to make. If you take one thing away from this, it's not that they intervened in that way amongst others. That is the reason why government intervened in 1870 in England and Wales in order to put its mark on the cultural wars, which then were about working class emancipation and the place of religion in society, as was indicated earlier. So the government got involved, and slowly, with act after act, I, I'm greatly interested in public choice theory, and public choice theory would say that once you, know, you get a government involved in a certain area, it's likely to extend and extend and extend that involvement. Um, and I can see, you can just see so many acts come up after the 1870 Act, but mostly, or many of them, designed to further strengthen the position of religion in the schools. So the 1890-70 Act gave grants to the Church of England and Roman Catholic schools. The 1902 Education Act, the Balfour Act, outraged those nonconformists because it now further subsidized the Church of England schools and the Catholic schools and further pushed away the nonconformist schools and, of course, the for-profit schools um, for instance, the Methodists at the time in 1902 operated 738 schools. In the present time, I can only see 25 Methodist schools uh, in existence. And of course, the last for-profit private schools serving these communities died in 1921 in a village not far from where, where we are today. It was catalogued by a University of Cambridge history of education professor 
those schools were crowded out, pushed out, and eventually the local authority schools and the, the established religious schools continued. And this all continued up to the 1944 Act, the, the famous um, Butler Act, named after Rab Butler, the conservative. It was, we always think of it as the 44 Act, well, it wasn't actually instituted until 47 after the war. Now, my guess it's most famous to you here for the tripartite system it introduced. That is the system of grammar schools, secondary modern, and the intention was technical schools. That's my guess about what the, the, um, the, the, the 1944 Act means to you. But it also, and most relevantly to my discussion, introduced compulsory worship in schools and compulsory religious education in schools. Uh, parents were allowed to excuse their children from this compulsory worship, compulsory religious education. Unlike, incidentally, I should have said at the beginning, parents are not allowed to excuse their children from compulsory relationship education, although the sex bit is still allowed. They're not allowed to do that now. They were allowed to do that in 1944, and although the Act doesn't specifically say Christian, Anglican, and so on, the 1988 Education Reform Act under Margaret Thatcher specified that this act of worship, which is still compulsory in schools to this day, it's one of the few things from the 1944 Act which still remains. Um, in the 1988 Act, it was said this should be wholly or mainly of a broadly Christian character. And second, of relevance to my argument here, is the 1944 Act effectively nationalized the Church of England and the Roman Catholic schools. They were brought in as voluntary controlled or voluntary aided schools and became state funded, for more or less now the same as any other state schools. So if you like, that 1944 Act I see as consolidating the whole move that started in 1870 where it was designed to keep the working class in their places and, um, and imbue them in the state-approved religions of the time in order to, well, we can, we can think what the, what the reason might be. Okay, so that was, that's really the culture war that I consider most interesting because it was there at the beginning of state education that's why the state got involved in order, in a sense, to bring in that culture war, uh, the, you know, that position on the culture war at that time. But the 1944 Act then brought in, if you like, opened, it opened another front in the education culture wars. And that was then over this whole issue of selection and uh, uh, the, the role of grammar schools and so on, and the role of schooling in an e for egalitarianism. There were numerous, this whole thing became a political football after the 1944 Act. There was the, uh, the 1965, Circular 1065, which was brought in, which said local authorities should move towards comprehensive schools. The Tories got back in 1970 and had Circular 1070, which sort of tried to stop that. The, the Labour got back in 74 with Circular 474, which reaffirmed comprehensive comprehensivization, and so on and so forth. It was a culture, there was a, what still goes on today, to this date, about the role of 
schools in egalitarianism, Tony Crossland, who was Secretary of State for Education, he was the guy who issued Circular 1065 under the Labour government. He said, if it's the last thing I do, I am going to destroy every effing grammar school in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. And I, obviously today I could say the word he said. He actually said the word, but I still have certain words I don't like saying in public. That's my F word that I refuse to say in public. But he said it in public. I'm going to destroy every effing grammar school in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. And when asked why not Scotland too, he disappointingly said, well, Scotland, unfortunately, is the responsibility of the Scottish office, <laughs> not, not of me. And one of his advisors for this um, circular was Professor A.H. Holsey of Oxford. And he wrote, some people, and I am one, want to use education as an instrument in pursuit of an egalitarian society. So that's the culture, a different culture war emerged with that same act, and it carries on to this day. I often feel sorry for Sir Cyril Burt. Now, I don't know if anyone's heard of Sir Cyril Burt at a university department I worked in. He was, to me, the great psychologist who studied IQ and intelligence, greatly concerned about the education of the ordinary people in the slums of East London. Um, but he was then discredited after his death, wrongly, I believe, and in a university department, which I won't mention, but it's one of those ones that he mentioned, Oxford, Newcastle, or Manchester, that where I've been, there used to be a Sir Cyril Burt prize for the worst thing done to, to education at that time. I remember Sir Chris Woodhead got it at one stage. Um, anyway, but Sir Cyril Burt, he's implicated in the 11 plus and the grammar school, but he wasn't so stupid as to think that that would, that sort of government-imposed system was the right way forward. He said in his evidence to the Norwood Committee of 1943, the grounds for allocating children to schools of different types at the early age of 11 are administrative rather than psychological. It would be exceptional, only in very exceptional cases, that such types as envisaged by the Norwood report, you know, the 11 plus grammar school or secondary modern, would display themselves by the age of 11. And once the children have been sent to one type of school or another, there won't be any chance of them being reallocated. So, so Cyril Burt basically was not in favor of the one side of the culture wars that he's often associated with, but certainly Crosland and Halsey were in favor of the side that they are associated with. So look, in my last five minutes, what is to be done? <laughs> Can we do anything? And I know there was this sort of, you know, what are the chances? So I was given in my sort of notes, my advisory notes, what are, you know, can you suggest any way forward? And I have a very modest proposal, which is to get the state out of education altogether. <laughs> um, it's a mad, crazy proposal. I know they call me, they call me Tuli Madly Deeply up north sometimes. Um, but I have confidence in this proposal because I've seen it happen in the developing countries. And um, James kindly showed you my book, The Beautiful Tree. This is based on decades now of work in developing countries, in South Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Central America, looking at this extraordinary phenomenon, just like 
what was taking place in Victorian England, you've got, and it's almost like you're going back to that time, you've got ordinary people in the slums, in the poor areas, creating typically for-profit private schools, which are massively preferred by parents because they're teaching them the three R's and not the things that the state necessarily wants them to learn. And they are serving a majority, 80% of children in cities like Lagos, Accra in Ghana, Nairobi, Kenya, Kampala, Uganda, Delhi, Hyderabad, Ahmedabad in India. 80% of kids are in private schools and a significant minority in, in the rural areas. And this, what you could call grassroots privatization, is taking place not because some government has said, this is what we want. It's in spite of what government is saying. These private schools are emerging. There is this grassroots rebellion against the state. And I don't see why, if we wanted to, we couldn't do something similar here. James mentioned I'd started a low-cost private school up in the northeast of England. God willing, we will start a second one in January and a third one soon thereafter. And we can talk about it in the Q&A if you want, but I see that in its incredibly modest, incredibly small-scale way, showing that we can create, we've passed our Ofsted, <laughs> we passed our Ofsted with flying colors, we can create a good school at half the cost per capita of state education, which is affordable to those on the second lowest quintile, and with scholarship funds that we're raising, is affordable to those um, on the lowest quintile. So that's my contribution. What I'm saying is, yes, education is important, but if you're ever tempted to think of, therefore we need to do something with state education, my Word of caution is, let's always be aware that the state got involved in education only and precisely in order to impose its values, the values of the elite in the culture wars. It was never in favor of the people. And my view is that we should resist that. I'm for resisting. Do you care to join me? Thank you. You've been listening to Professor James Tooley give the third lecture in the series Culture Wars, Then and Now. We'll return next week with another lecture from Dr Jan McVarish, who will be looking at the changing role of the family in the culture wars. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review, which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website www.theboi.co.uk. I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas Charity, which organises the Academy, as well as Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman who edited this podcast series. Music